Good morning. Welcome again to South Suburban Christian Church, our online uh, uh, service today. We want to welcome you, however you're joining us, whether it's on online.church or whether or not you're watching on YouTube uh, or listening to us on SoundCloud or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for taking time to be with us this morning. Uh, we're in the middle of a series. Uh, this is actually Sermon 2 uh, of a three-part series uh, on Advent for Dummies. And uh, we're, we'll talk a little bit more about that in just a moment. The text that I'd like to share with you today comes from the book of Hebrews. So if you have your Bible, I encourage you to open to the book of Hebrews. Or if you're following along on uh, a, our YouVersion Bible app, uh, you can uh, go to that where we also have the, the notes uh, that might help you. Uh, so looking at Hebrews chapter 7, and I'm going to begin. Now, I'd encourage you to read the whole chapter. I mean, you... you you, you really should read the whole chapter because all of it is talking about the uh, subject we're discussing today, and that is, is that Jesus is a priest like Melchizedek. But for uh, our message this morning, I'm going to begin reading in verse 17. So if you uh, have found Hebrews chapter 7, uh, verse 17, uh, let's read God's word together. For it is witnessed of him, and that's Jesus, you are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced, through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath, but this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, that is God, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. Speaking about Jesus, you are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, that is Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, or you might be following on along in, in, in another version, it might say, therefore, or because, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Here ends the reading of God's holy and perfect word. May he add his blessings and his understanding to it. Amen. As I said earlier, this is our second message in our series, three-part series, Advent for Dummies. Um, appreciate the uh, one note that we got from one of our viewers uh, who lives in Ohio, I think it is. He said that he really was of the opinion that Advent's for everyone, not just dummies. We appreciate that kind of uh, uh, gentle and joyful engagement with our messages. Thank you uh, for, for being with us and, and for taking this seriously. As I said earlier, Advent means the arrival or coming. Before Advent begins, which this year is November 29th, we are going to be exploring some of the unique aspects of that season known as Advent, where we're not just celebrating the birth of the baby Jesus, but celebrating first the incarnation of God who clothed himself in flesh, Jesus Christ, and entered into our human experience, something we're going to talk more about just in our message today, actually. 
And second, the second thing we celebrate in Advent is that we're preparing to, to uh, celebrate and, and observe, hopefully, maybe even in our lifetime, the second Advent of Jesus Christ, His coming again, His return, when He will bring with Him His perfect kingdom of justice and peace forever and ever. Amen. Well, I want to ask you, what is the power and significance of this coming Messiah? Now, this too has been the focus of our series during this Advent for Dummies uh, messages. We're exploring how God has revealed himself, how we know who God is as uh, New Testament Christians through the New Testament, the, uh, the revealed uh, written word of God who reveals to us the living word of God, Jesus Christ, but also looking at how God engaged and revealed his plan of salvation to his people in the Old Testament. And if you were with us last week, you remember that we said that God really works through predominantly three main offices that we see in the Old Testament time and time again as he uh, unleashes his grace and his mercy and his salvation uh, to his people. And those offices are the office of prophet, priest, and king. And that is Jesus is a prophet like Moses, like we talked about last week, a priest like Melchizedek, and a king like David. Now today we're going to be talking about that second office, that Jesus is a priest like Melchizedek. Did you know that there are 783,137 words in the King James Version of your Bible? Did you also know that there are over 3,000 different people mentioned in the Bible? And depending on how you classify uh, the stories in the Bible, there are somewhere between 600 and 800 unique, different stories in the Bible. Now, modern psychology tells us that the average human being can recognize about 5,000 faces. Uh, we don't know much about them, we just know we can differentiate them from one another. But it's also taught us that the average human being, the average person like me and like you, really can only keep straight about 150 people. That is, as we might know their name and maybe just a little something about them. That is, as only, the, the average human social context is only about 150 people. Well, um, why do I tell you that? Well, that's probably the reason that the vast majority of us have never heard or know anything about this guy named Melchizedek. And even if we've heard the name uh, and even heard the phrase that Jesus is a priest like Melchizedek, we may not have really given much time or attention to it. But we're going to do that today. You know, I find it interesting that the writer of Hebrews spends 28 verses, 28 verses in Hebrews chapter 7, talking about a guy in the Old Testament that the Old Testament only talks about for five verses. You know, I think it might help, because it's not that long, to just simply go back to the Old Testament and to, to, to read what the Old Testament says uh, about uh, this person named Melchizedek. It's found in Genesis chapter 14, also in Psalm 110, where it just simply says that uh, the Messiah will be a priest uh, like Melchizedek, and that's basically it in the Psalms. And then in Genesis, we have this interesting story uh, where um, uh, Abram, uh, who becomes Abraham, is returning after having been victorious in battle over some kings. And uh, we pick up again in verse 18, just out of the blue. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought 
out bread and wine. He was a priest of God Most High. And he blessed Abram and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him, Melchizedek, a tenth of everything. And that's it. <laughs> that's really all we have. You know, I, I really enjoyed, though, studying Melchizedek. He's an interesting person to pursue. And although not much is mentioned about Melchizedek in the Bible, uh, he is mentioned a great deal in other uh, Jewish writings, commentaries, including the Midrash, which is one of the most preeminent commentaries written by ancient rabbis about the Jewish faith. He was considered a very important figure in the Qumran community. Now, you might have heard that name. The Qumran community are the folks who preserved what we know today to be the Dead Sea Scrolls, a community of very uh, observant Jews who really had grown disgusted with the temple and the Levitical priests in the temple who were working in partnership with the Roman Empire, who were persecuting the people. And so this community withdrew and lived around the Dead Sea. Melchizedek was an important figure, and, and there's some wonderful studies about why that happened. He was um, also um, a uh, celebrated figure, well, shall we say, in many early sects of the Christian faith. Uh, these are groups that kind of split off from from the main teachings of the apostles and the Christian faith. Uh, one group called the Gnostics, which lived in North Africa, had a significant uh, uh, tradition uh, about Melchizedek. Now, we call these groups, well, heretical these days, but in the time uh, of the writing of the book of Hebrews and even on into the future, uh, these sects, these groups, these organizations really lived alongside of more traditional Christians who were following the teachings of the apostles. Now, if you look at all of these, several dozen uh, that each incorporate significant uh, writings and teachings about Melchizedek, if you, if you look at all of them, man, you will see tons of different perspectives of who Melchizedek is. I mean, some say that he is an angel that was sent by God. Others say that he was the descendant of Shem, who was one of the sons of Noah. Uh, one tradition says that he is a human that predated the flood, perhaps back soon after Adam and Eve in the book of Genesis, uh, because he lives forever. And um, uh, when the flood happened, God took Melchizedek alone, put him into the Garden of Eden, uh, where no other human was allowed to go so that he would be preserved and then brought back into the world after the flood. <laughs> some and those are just some of the outlandish ones i think that were relatively accepted uh, some others that come from more traditional serious uh, sober perspectives is that melchizedek might have been a theophany now a theophany is a manifestation of god in human form for a particular period of time for a particular purpose uh, so it's not that god takes human form to stay forever but just for a moment for a particular reason and that Melchizedek was that theophany, that God himself came and appeared in human form to Abram. Others say it's a Christophany, which is essentially the same thing, but instead of uh, the, the presence of God, uh, probably God the Father, uh, Christophany is the, is the manifestation of God the Son. Uh, and uh, we see lots of that in the Old Testament, and the early church uh, talked a lot about those things. 
Martin Luther, the Protestant reformer, just simply said Melchizedek was a human being, a king, a priest, who is an archetype, is an example, is someone that the New Testament writers were looking back to amidst all of the traditions around Melchizedek in order to talk about the supremacy and work of Jesus Christ. And as you might imagine, I kind of agree with Luther than all of the other groups. So I want to share with you just a little bit about Uh, a little bit more about Melchizedek and how that relates to Jesus. So here's point one. Melchizedek was an eternal priest, a king of righteousness, and a king of peace. Now, the name Melchizedek, Melech, which means king, and Zadok, or Zedek, which means righteousness, so the king of righteousness. He was, so that's what his name means. He he was both a, a king and a priest. Now, that's an unusual combination in the Old Testament. You occasionally find a prophet who's a priest, uh, and, uh, but, but we don't typically see kings as prophets, and we don't typically see kings as priests. It's an unusual combination. We also know from Scripture, as I read to you from Genesis, that King uh, Melchizedek was from Salem. Now, Salem means peace. It's a derivative of the Hebrew word shalom, which we all know means peace. And some have even suggested that he might have been the king of Jerusalem, or Jerusalem, the city of peace, which ultimately becomes, as we know, the city of David. So we have in this man, Melchizedek, the king of righteousness, a prince of peace, you might say of sorts, a man who brings out bread and wine out to Abram after his victory, and one who received from Abram one-tenth of all of his spoils. Now, I think for most of us as average Christians, we can see a lot of foreshadowing and nuances and similarities, and now it doesn't seem so strange that the writer of Hebrews compares Jesus and Melchizedek together. Now, I've shared some more interesting things about who Melchizedek is in the notes, which you can uh, get uh, through our YouVersion Bible app, or if not, please email our office at office at southsuburban.com, and we'll get those to you. But uh, with that description, with those correlations that I've already drawn, uh, let's think about how Jesus relates and is connected to this. I, I think that the writer of Hebrews is drawing a strong thesis antithesis between the Arianic, that is the sons of Aaron, the brother of Moses, who become the tribe of Levi, the Levitical priests, the priests who uh, worked in the temple of God in Jerusalem, that the writer of Hebrews is drawing a, a thesis antithesis between those Le- Levitical priests uh, uh, that, are, that are stalwart within the Jewish faith and Jesus. That Jesus carries some level of, of authority, not only as a part of the Levitical priesthood, and that could be a whole other study, quite frankly, but it's an, an even better priesthood, I think the writer of Hebrews is saying. It's a priesthood that predates even the Levites, the priesthood of Melchizedek. One that the Bible itself says is forever, and one that is older and greater than the descendants even of Abram. In the lesson that we read today, the key verse in Hebrews chapter 7, the verse that we really need to pay attention to in trying to understand What this is saying about Jesus, which is our primary job and role here, is found in verse 25. So you might want to highlight it, underline it, make a little star next to it, because that is the summary of the entire chapter. 
Consequently, the writer of Hebrews begins in verse 25. He, that is Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. And here in this verse is where we begin to see clearly not only the correlation between Jesus and Melchizedek, but that Christ is our great high priest and that he's even greater than Melchizedek. So my point too is, Jesus is God's prophet to us. And Jesus is our priest before God. Now, let's unpack this whole priest-prophet thing. Um, The best way to, to tell the difference between a priest and a prophet is to look how they stand in the midst of God's people. So a prophet is someone who speaks on behalf of God to the people. That's what a prophet does. Uh, Think of Jeremiah or Isaiah or any of the other prophets of the Old Testament. You know they mean business when they start their speech with, Thus saith the Lord. They speak on behalf of God to the people. Even in this role as, as a pastor speaking to the people, there is a prophetic aspect of this. Although the counsels that we look to are the counsel of Scripture, uh, uh, that, that reveals the fullness of God's will. Last week, Moses tells us that the way we know if a prophet is really a prophet is, is that if what they say comes to pass, and if God has told a prophet what to say, the prophet better say it. God has told us what he has said. We better say it. But that if a prophet has not been told what to say, and they say it as if God has told them, Moses says that their life will be required of them. So that's a prophet. A priest is someone who speaks to God on behalf of the people. You, as a royal priesthood of believers, have done this for one another all the time. When someone asks you to pray for them, what you are doing when you do that is you are exercising your priestly responsibilities as a baptized believer. You are speaking to God on behalf of the person who's going through a tough time or or who is sick. It's a holy calling that you and I have been given. When Pastor Joe and myself lead you in worship, in prayer, in song, we are exercising our priestly work through our office as baptized believers and having been called by you to be pastors in Christ's church. And, and, And in a unique way, I think, Pastors and elders who have a mere shadow of the office of Jesus also do that when we're called to speak on behalf of God through Scripture and to God on behalf of you when we serve at the Lord's table, when we anoint the sick with oil, when we pray for the bereaved, when we call the church together to celebrate the apostles' teachings, fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. It is through this work as priests, specifically, that Jesus does that saves us. I'm going to let that statement sit there for a second. It is the work of Jesus as our priest that keeps us secure in our salvation. To the uttermost, the writer of Hebrews says. That means forever and completely, fully. But what are we being saved from? Isn't that the next question? 
Now, we need to be clear about this, brothers and sisters. And I know that some of you are probably going to get irritated with me when I say this. So I want to say this with all humility, but I also want to beg for you to open your heart. But the implication, as the writer of Hebrews is writing, as Paul writes in his letters in the New Testament, is that you and I are being saved from God's justified and holy wrath at our stubbornness and our continual rebellion. Now let me give you some scripture to support that because I don't want to speak unless I'm sure that I'm speaking on behalf of what God's Word says. In Romans chapter 1, verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all our ungodliness and, un- and unrighteousness, who by our unrighteousness suppress the truth. We don't want to know that about ourselves. We want to suppress that idea that we are indeed a rebellious and stubborn and stiff-necked people. And appropriately, God's wrath burns against that, that, that act of, of stubbornness, that act of rebellion, that act of continued reveling in our brokenness. Listen, until we're willing to get our priorities straight and take a long, hard look at ourselves, we won't understand the rest of the book of Hebrews, if not the entirety of Scripture itself. You see, I'm going to say some things now that I want you to really think about. You don't have to agree with them, but I want you to think about them. The major problem of the world is not broken marriages. It's not wayward children. It's not financial unfaithfulness or cultural degradation. It's not our continued uh, uh, predilection to objectify other people, human trafficking, pornography, greed, racism, injustice. These are all extensions of the major problem. These are symptoms of the major problems, but they're not the problems themselves. They may be signs that where these problems exist, the major problem continues to be in, in, in force, continues to be unresolved. But the major problem is this. It's everyone's problem. How can we be reconciled to a God who loves us, and how can we escape the, ju- the judgment that is rightfully ours? Now, now, for our Hebrew forebears, for the Jews in the time of the Hebrew Scriptures, the answer to that question was the temple, specifically the temple priests and the sacrifices that they offered to cover the sins of the people. But what's God's answer? God's answer was to clothe himself with flesh and come and be among us, Emmanuel. And as the most perfect priest, save us. But how? Well, I'm going to jump to the end of that sentence uh, there in verse 25 and look at the answer. Point three, he lives forever to make intercession for us. That means our future is rooted in the work Christ did on Calvary, the work he is doing this very day as we are together. Think about that for a second. As you and I are together right now, at this very moment, God the Son is interceding on behalf of you. He's interceding on behalf of me to God the Father. And He will do that forever so that our salvation is forever. Now now this isn't God the Son appeasing an angry, bitter, hateful God the Father for some purpose that 
uh, is oftentimes perverted in the culture and in the world. This was God's idea. God the Father sent God the Son. And God the Son accepted this eternal work out of love. The triune God loves all of us so that our unrighteousness and our brokenness can be covered and our access to God is secured. This means that because of the eternal indestructibility of Christ's priesthood, our salvation is also indestructible. Now, yes, the, the work of Christ on the cross, His victory over the tomb, our receiving this grace through faith is central. But according to Scripture, that isn't all there is to it. Because of Christ's obedience, His sacrifice, His victory over death, His constant and eternal intercession for us, that's how we're secure. You are sealed because at this moment, Christ continues to pour His righteousness over our unrighteousness. His obedience to cover our rebellion. His love and sacrifice to cover our apathy and selfishness. We are saved eternally because of Jesus' eternal prayers. Now I want you to write just a couple more verses down as we, we, we bring this to a conclusion. Romans chapter 8, verse 34. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, he, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Jesus is our advocate. In the uh, letter of John, 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous. Man, all of Scripture begins to come together, doesn't it? Powerfully. Jesus is our high priest. He prays for us and his prayers are answered because he prays perfectly on the basis of his perfect sacrifice. You don't believe me yet? When you get a chance, I want you to read Luke chapter 22. Verses 31 and 32, when Jesus says to Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and you, when once you turn again, strengthen your brothers. So already Jesus was interceding for Peter when he was here on earth. And he is praying for our faith as well, that our faith will not fail. And with regard to Peter, Jesus was so confident in his own prayer that he said to Peter, when once you have turned again, not if you turn again. So even though Peter denied Jesus the night Jesus was arrested, Peter's faith did not fail because Jesus was praying for him. You know, that's the same encouragement. That's the same promise, the same hope that is for... Well, that's our final question. For whom? Point four. This eternal intercession is for those who draw near to God through Christ. Last week, we ended the message with that great passage from Revelation chapter 22. As we prepare for this Advent season going forward in the weeks ahead, remember Revelation 22, verse 12, Behold, 
I am coming soon. Advent. And again in verse 17, the Spirit and the bride say, Come, Advent. And let the one who hears say, Come, Advent. And let the one who is thirsty come, Advent. And let the one who desires take the water of life without price. My brothers and my sisters, Advent reminds us that Christ has come, that He is coming again, the first time as a prophet like Moses, but greater than Moses. Now and forever as a priest like Melchizedek, but greater as a true king of righteousness and a true king of peace. And when He comes again, a king like David. But, well, we'll get to that in our next message. But now, right now, your priest who is ready to begin the eternal work of praying for you and interceding for you before the Father, invites you today to draw near to God through Him. For the love of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is yours if you will receive it. Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Do you accept Him as Lord and Savior? you've made that decision today will you click on the link if you're on our online.church platform if you're watching or listening on any of our other platforms send us an email at office at southsuburban.com that we might celebrate with you and walk with you and express our joy that in your life also christ is interceding interceding as your high priest as he serves and prays for the whole company of believers may that be a reason to celebrate Christ's first coming and look forward to his second coming. Will you pray with me? Merciful God, thank you for speaking to us on behalf of God, exercising that prophetic office, a prophet even better than Moses. And thank you too, O God, the perfect son of righteousness, the perfect son of peace, who comes to us as our priest, a priest like Melchizedek, who makes intercession for us to God the Father. We bow before you, O prophet, O priest, O king, forever and ever, as you offer yourself for us forever and ever. Amen.